Cuando desempaques tus regalos Niño de lujosa vecindad Piensa en tantos niños que no saben Para qué es la Navidad Piensa en el chavalo limpiabotas Que su noche buena pasará En una banqueta dura y fría del atrio de catedral Feliz Navidad Feliz Navidad en justicia y libertad Feliz Navidad un mundo Welcome to the Magnificast I am your flying reindeer biologist for the week You're flying <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm your flying reindeer biologist oh, I, uh, I thought you were a I, biologist who flies yeah, right, right. I can understand the confusion. Um, who knows? Maybe I'll get a little bit of that flying dust on me next time. Ooh, you never know. Well, I'm Matt Bernico, and I'm just the I'm just the elf sitting on your shelf. <laughs> uh, the song that you just heard is the song we're going to use for the rest of this Christmas arc. It is called uh, Navidad and Libertad by Carlos uh, Magia Godoy, who, if you don't know, is a, a really fantastic um, folk musician from Nicaragua. He was part of the uh, Sandinista movement. He wrote uh, a mass for the working class, um, uh, a Nicaraguan peasant mass. We've talked about that in the past. But anyway, a really fantastic song. Sorry, it's all in Spanish if you... Um, don't know Spanish like me, I guess you can look up the lyrics and translate it. Uh, but it's a song that expresses this hope that uh, Christmas might become a, a revolutionary holiday and, and say something uh, about justice and, and a world that doesn't have misery and oppression. So go check it out. Uh, last week, to kick off the Christmas theme, we talked about Christmas in Cuba, looking at the history of the holiday over the course of the revolutionary developments in that country. Really fascinating stuff. But this week, we're going in a different direction, talking with Pamela Colossen, who co-edited a fascinating book called The Public Work of Christmas. It's a collection of essays that investigates the holiday from different vantage points. And Pamela also does a lot of research on colonialism and religion and secularism and media. So we got to figure out how all that works into the holiday as well. Yeah, it's a really cool interview. Um, I wish I knew Christmas studies existed before now because that would have been my undergrad major. I don't think that's possible, but <laughs> it's such a cool thing. It's a cool thing to study. Um, so if you like it, you should definitely check out the book, um, The Public Work of Christmas. You can uh, get it for some holiday reading. You can get it for a friend. You can um, put it in someone's stocking. That's a good idea. That's what people want for Christmas is a big book, uh, an, an edited collection of essays on Christmas. That's what everyone's been asking for. It's the... <laughs> It's the, you know, um, the toy of the season. I don't know. <laughs> a big book for your big stocking for your big feet. <laughs> That's right. Cool. Well, uh, let's go to the interview. This week on the show, we're talking with Pamela Claussen, a professor for the study of religion at the University of Toronto. Uh, she Well, she co-edited a, a really fun book called The Public Work of Christmas. It's a collection of essays investigating Christmas from a number of different uh, vantage points. We're really happy to have you on, Pamela. Uh, whenever we invite an author on the podcast, we always ask them for an elevator pitch for their project to kind of get people, um, you know, informed about what we're, what we're doing if they haven't looked at the book. Can you give us an elevator pitch for The Public work of Christmas? Sure. Um, I will uh, preface it by telling you, as I, as I did before we started chatting, 
that uh, I'm going to cheat a little bit and look at the back cover of the book because I've been so busy preparing for Christmas that I didn't have really a time to write my elevator pitch for you. So here we go. Um, I would say that this book, it's a collection of 12 authors, so lots of different perspectives on how Christmas is what we call an aggressively inclusive holiday. You can't escape it. Some people love that about it. Some people hate that about it. And so we try to look from historical, anthropological, musicological, all kinds of perspectives on what it is about Christmas that makes people love it and hate it. That's really good. A great, concise elevator pitch. In the introduction to your book, you have a few vocabulary words that you introduced really early on um, that help kind of frame you know, what's going on in the book. So maybe it would be helpful if you could um, talk us through some of those. So, for example, in the introduction, you talk about Christmas as a place for public memory and that it's, you know, ubiquitous. It seems like it is, like you said, aggressively inclusive, but it's also, you know, something really nuanced and malleable. So could you help us think through some of those big ideas you've used to, you've used to frame the book, like um, just public memory, like what that kind of means or what, what it even means in the title of the book? Sure. So public by public memory, we mean the ways that memory is shared collectively but then also contested in public. Um, there's a whole big literature on ideas of collective memory, public memory, um, so I won't go into that uh, here. People can look, look for that work if they're interested in it. But for us, it's that um, Christmas has this really interesting uh, betwixt and between character to it in that um, it is a Christian holiday. It is a holiday that marks the birth of Jesus. Uh, it's a nat nativity story. Uh, it is a you know foundational um, uh, holiday festival in the the cyclical cycle of Christianity. Yet it has also become so much more, uh, and uh, that very um, focused Christianness of uh, Christmas. Um, is something that people uh, makes people uncomfortable, makes people very defensive and protective. So Christians, uh, some Christians are concerned that you know the, the true meaning of Christmas, the reason for the season, gets diluted through all the gift giving and the uh, consumerism, etc. Whereas uh, at the same time, some of those same critics also will go about and purchase many gifts for their family. So there is something about uh, a festival uh, in the wintertime, in the northern climes, we could say, um, that is at once really, um, I think, important for people, um, but also uh, the fact that that in a supposedly secular, and we can talk about what we mean by that if you want, uh, in, a, in a culture like Canada, in a, in a place like Canada or Germany or other European nations that are that have this Christian heritage to them, uh, but also are very multicultural and multi-religious spaces, it's a problem that that the whole society shuts down for, you know, one to two weeks, depending on where you are, uh, for a Christian holiday. Uh, that's not answering your question about the, uh, the concepts, though, so I could take another go with that if you want. Um, that's what we mean by public memory. We call the book the public work of Christmas because we're understanding it as a space of public contestation, but also public collectiveness. So I really, um, I don't want this to be, I don't, 
other people may uh, be more comfortable about this in the book. So you have to remember that I'm just the co-editor and I write one of the chapters. I don't really want to be a Scrooge, a critical Scrooge in the context of the book, because there are aspects of Christmas that I personally love. And I think it is great that even if it is a Christian holiday, it is great that uh, for many people, not for all people, many precarious workers, it's not the case, uh, there is a uh, a gap in the sort of relentless, we call it the chronos of the marketplace. Uh, ironically, the, the, the sort of high, frenzied height of consumerism before Christmas actually does stop for a couple of days. So, I mean, maybe it's a too high of a cost to pay, but it is um, uh, the fact that Christmas still is a true holiday from work is something I think that, that many people value, even those who would be highly critical uh, of the holiday for various reasons. Yeah, thanks. That's a really good way of getting a lot of themes out on the table. Um, and we'll come back to several of them, like secularism and uh, the kind of Christian specificity there. But um, just to kind of talk a little bit more, too, about this public memory and the specificity of Christmas. So Christmas is is this really interesting holiday. Uh, there's all kinds of tensions in cultural hegemony and that sort of thing that sort of play out during that time. Um, and some of those ideas might play out similarly or differently surrounding other holidays. But uh, with that being the case, how do you think Christmas is kind of unique or, or different from other holidays in, you know, largely Christian or post-Christian societies? Um, how does Christmas kind of stand out? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it stands out. Um, so another big concept that we use is what we call the seasonal habitus. And there we're drawing on a long tradition of you know, thinkers like uh, Maus and then Al-Assad and others, Pierre Bourdieu, who think about habitus as a as a sort of feel for the game, as a, as a as an uh, understanding of just sort of knowing what to do in certain situations. And that's where I think Christmas is kind of interesting because it's it because of its aggressive inclusivity, you you can't really avoid it. You can avoid Easter for the most part if you're not really a Christian. I mean, you might see the bunnies and the you know. Uh, drugstore or whatever, chocolate bunnies, but you don't have to listen to music. You don't have to see the decorations everywhere. Christmas becomes um, uh, sort of, there's a scholar named Matthew Engelke who talks about ambient faith. It becomes, it just becomes, it's it's just in the, literally in the air because you look up and there it is, the, the bells, the angels, they're everywhere. You can't get away from it. Um, so there is something about uh, it, it's what you might call a total holiday uh, in the and I hear I'm talking about um, I think it, the one thing that I think is important in our chapters is that they're not talking about Christmas in a generic sense. They're talking about it in a very local specific sense. So we have a chapter on Singapore and a particular street in Singapore and how these luxury retailers um display Christmas uh, in the street. Uh, and then there's there's chapters on cathedrals um, in England and uh, and so forth. Um, so, so I think Christmas is always a local holiday, but it's also a total holiday. That's one of the things that we want people to sort of think about. And it's also got what we call sort of um, affordances. So that's a sort of t- a term coming out of, sort of design studies. And there are certain kinds of um, affordances or possibilities that certain kinds of holidays or structures or um, uh, ways of designing the world have embedded in them that people don't even necessarily realize. And I think one of the affordances of Christmas is that because it has, because it's a story that 
many people know, even if they're not Christian, partly because it's just told over and over again. Um, it's actually a story that can be politicized in all kinds of different ways. Uh, so the, what people are, since I've you know published this book, people are always sending me emails about interesting things about what's going on with Christmas. And the latest one I got yesterday was uh, a Methodist church in California that has um, done its nativity scene up in uh, particularly you know uh, in a border region where they're very concerned about um, questions around. Um, ICE and apprehending children and uh, on the border of California and, um, and Mexico. Uh, they've done their nativity scene up with Jesus, Mary, and the baby Jesus all in separate cages, uh, kept away from each other. So that is an uh, uh, excellent example of, of an affordance of Christmas. It's a story where a family needed help and were given help, uh, and it's obviously also a you know profound um Myth, mythic story orienting uh, Christianity, but then also gets deployed to to reflect on uh, how families in need of help today are or are not given uh, given respite and refuge. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up politics um, and affordances that Christmas gives to those politics. I mean, whenever I think about Christmas, that's actually where I go to first, which is maybe sad. Um, <laughs> but on the one hand, you, you know, you with Christmas, you have folks who are always like fearful of others infringing on Christmas, like the keep the Christ in Christmas folks or mm -hmm. people who are mad about Starbucks mm -hmm. cups or whatever. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, you have um, people who craft the Christmas story in, in light of other types of progressive politics, like you just said, like, um, you know, refugees and, you know, using the, the story of the flight of Egypt or something and turning it into an inclusive story. Um, and then, you know, using, using um, popular political images like cages uh, to tell a, you know, a different story about Christmas too. So, um, yeah, I think this kind of raises all kinds of questions about like how flexible, um, Christmas as Christmas is as a holiday, um, and how it can be, um, used rhetorically in different ways. But I guess it makes me wonder, like, is Christmas <laughs> in that, in that it is like a total holiday, like you said, which is a great term. Uh, is it just like one more place for politics to play out or is there something more is, is, uh, is Christmas political, do you think? Totally Christmas is political, but I would pretty much say everything is political, so that's probably not so helpful. Um, I think that the the thing about Christmas is it is an endlessly, okay, maybe not endlessly, they're probably, depending on how you think about the future of uh, the climate crisis, maybe endlessly and eternal, eternal uh, using those kinds of words is, it doesn't work anymore, but let's just say it's a kind of eternal return of politics uh, in uh, every year uh, in, in December that, that gives us a sort of stage on which to ask some big questions that are never going to be answered. And I think this is one of the things that, that I think is so important about seasonal ritual um, in a, from a kind of critical political stance. There's a lot of talk these days around finding solutions to things and thinking that if we just get the right system design, we'll have the, you know, everything will be sorted out. If we just get enough AI in there, we'll be able to sort of uh, preempt any kind of uh, um, problems that are going to come our way. But we are human. We live uh, in an, 
we live on on land that we have not cared for and waters that we have polluted and we live in a in a situation in which our our political institutions we've taken them for granted uh, and uh, we need to actually care for them and so solutions yeah solutions are are good if we could figure out some way to you know uh, bury carbon in a way that wasn't gonna um, destroy the earth that that well that would be a good idea to come up with some solutions for that but we are always going to have the same questions about um, changing kinds of inequality, changing kinds of, of hegemony and, and who has power over others. And not to, you know, be too grandiose about it, but the fact that we have these cyclical um, rituals in which we check in on certain things that we consider to be of value to us, I think are, are utterly important and that we have those, those conversations as public conversations. So if you think about, you know, the endless, you know, recitation of a Christmas Dickens, a Christmas Carol, right? That gets people thinking about, well, what, what are our responsibilities to each other? What are our responsibilities to our past selves? How do we, how are we um, provoked uh, in the here and now into rethinking uh, our own privilege and our responsibility to others? Um, and that story, that 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 story of a Christmas Carol, you know, prompts you to to think about that anew each year, and and as just thinking individually, we change over time, but also thinking collectively, we change over time, and so we regularly need to ask those questions. We are not going to find solutions to the questions of inequity. We always have to be asking the asking the questions, and and finding out um, the kinds of the right relationships we need to be striving towards. But we're never going to fix these problems. That was a bit of a <laughs> bit of a rant, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's good. We welcome those rants here for sure. Uh, well, I like to what you were saying because it really draws out the ambiguities of Christmas in general. And I feel somewhat similarly to what you were saying earlier of uh, on the one hand, I I have a I've cultivated a certain critical consciousness that you know it, it puts my life under a microscope in in some respects, and you try to <laughs> not let that overcome your your every daily moment. Uh, but at the same time, I also have some deep unironic love for for so many uh, goofy like Christmas traditions. Um, so it's helpful to kind of figure out you know what's going on there and and how might that be put to use. Um, but speaking of politics too, I wonder if you could talk a little more directly about. Uh, some of the cultural narratives that happen around Christmas, especially those defensive narratives. So we talked a bit about the openings Christmas might give, um, but what do you make of the discourse around things like the war on Christmas or something like that? Like, what does that phrase seem to think that Christmas is? Who's waging a war on Christmas and how? <laughs> like, uh, what does that phrase really mean, do you think, um, when it's when it's put to work in that way? Yeah, in the book, we call that the weaponization of Christmas. Uh, and it's interesting because it looks very different in, in different chapters in the book. So um, because this book was a, a, came out of a collaboration with German scholars, um, there's a number of uh, chapters in the book that look at how uh, the Nazi regime used Christmas um, in various ways, including a, a really powerful and troubling uh, essay on the singing of Christmas carols in uh, concentration camps and the s- narratives around Christmas carols in uh, uh, both World War One and then uh, World War Two, and so um, you can see there how um, you know wars are going on and Christmas still happens, and so those you know that that um, the narrative of the you know on the front when the Germans and the and the Allies 
start seeing silent night to each other. She, she sort of investigates that, that kind of question. Um, but then you also have, um, and there's other really interesting chapters, in, in, including one where uh, thinking about traditions of folklore studies in Germany and how they're tied to the nation state in different ways and how Christmas becomes a really central sort of um, axis of, of research in those contexts. So, you know, Scholars are implicated. Uh, we're all implicated in thinking about how Christmas, uh, the public work of Christmas. Um, the more recent discussions of the war on Christmas uh, often come out of a, um, in North American contexts, come out of a more sort of conservative evangelical uh, perspective of wanting to, and, and Catholic uh, perspective of wanting to, you know, protect Christmas and its sort of integrity as a theological uh, sort of lodestar, so to speak, uh, for for Christians. Um, I mean, the ironic thing there is many of those same people uh, would also um, want to uh, make arguments that certain kinds of Christian theological perspectives should uh, do greater public work and sh- and should have more. Um, uh, influence over a broader public sphere. So on the one hand, so when you think about questions around reproductive rights and, and uh, women's bodies and that sort of thing. Um, so you have on the one hand, people wanting to protect Christmas from this nasty sort of public commodification. And on the other hand, they uh, want other uh, sort of theological um, perspectives to have broader um, sway in public. And so you can't really have it both ways. Um, you have to, well, I guess some people can. Um, but uh, it's it's interesting to think about where Christianity needs to be protected from the secular, so to speak, and where Christianity is, is thought of as sort of um, appropriately infusing the secular, if you see what I mean. Yeah, the secular and the religious... Um are very complicated when it comes to Christmas, especially it being sort of like a an aggressively inclusive holiday. Um, so could we, I mean, just do a little bit more uh, vocabulary work here and um, tell, can you tell us like how we might separate out those two terms, the secular and the religious and how they play, you know, with Christmas. Um, is, is Christmas even a religious holiday anymore? Is it a secular holiday? Mm-hmm. Like the, you know, like the right-wingers might fear or something. So what do these two terms have to do with Christmas? So I think here's a great example of of the hazards of using the word religious because Christian Christ, sorry Christmas is a is a Christian holiday and whether that means it's a religious holiday is you know you can come and take my uh, religious studies classes and we can talk about <laughs> what that means a, a little more but basically in a, in a short version um, you know the word religion comes out of a particular um, sort of um, cultural and theoretical uh, tradition in English, uh, in um, comes out of you know anthropological work um, and and colo- colonial uh, understandings of uh, being able to recognize religion as something that often looks a lot like Christianity. So the whole concept of of religion is already a sort of Christian infused concept. To take it back to Christmas, um, I think here. Um, it's really, and this is why I think it was really helpful to think with Christmas in these terms, because it you can't get away from the fact that it is a Christian holiday in some form. Um, I mean, even for people who celebrate Christmas but don't think there's anything Christian about it, um, it is still a, a Christian holiday. And here we have a uh, we have a great article by uh, Yanni Feller in the article in the uh, book 
where he talks about the use of a Christmas tree in the former exhibits in the um, Jewish Museum Berlin. So you'd go through the, the permanent exhibit, which is telling the history of Jews in Germany, and at one point you'd turn a corner and there's a Christmas tree, and you're wondering, what what is that doing there? Um, and that uh, it's, it's to show the, um, the real... That for many Jews, especially in the in the early 20th century, uh, celebrating Christmas was fine, and they thought it was because they were truly German and they were celebrating uh, a holiday that everybody else celebrated. Um, and he and he thinks more about what that means, and 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 then shows how you know, it, despite their sense that they were part of of Germany, it becomes clear that uh, that they're. They are uh, not uh, as the um, as the century progresses. So I highly recommend reading that article. Um, so I think there are probably fewer. I'm trying to think, there are probably fewer um, discussions of uh, the secular per se in the book. Um, but I think another interesting um, chapter to sort of think through that is uh, Isaac Weiner's chapter on uh, rethinking the Grinch who stole Christmas. Um, and he's a scholar of religion and sound, and so he's really thinking about um, how that his his work really helped us think about the aggressive inclusivity question because you know there is such a sonic power to Christmas. You hear it everywhere, the music, the the bells, everything. And he uh, thinks about that um, that um, question. Uh, in, through, through a very interesting and creative reading of uh, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas as somebody who wasn't really such a nasty guy. He just kind of wanted to be left alone, but he couldn't escape. So um, that's, that's not, he's not directly engaging the question of the secular and the religious there, but I think it's something that um, uh, we can, th that line really becomes blurred when you're thinking about Christmas. Yeah, that's great. Uh, one thing that is so fun about reading through these essays is exactly that, like contextualizing Christmas as it relates to a certain cultural power or, or this thing that you can't escape. Uh, it's such a, an interesting thing. Um, so could you maybe say too a little bit more about how like uh, how Christmas is tied into a certain Christian hegemony and how there's there there is a, a, a Christian way of, of not escaping or, or this aggressive inclusivity also seems like a, a kind of Christian thing. Uh, thing in many respects um the question of christian hegemony um yeah yes. i think i think we tried to deal with that in a, in sort of multiple ways um so you can see that like looked at from one perspective christian hegemony is is quite hegemonic uh looked at from another perspective it becomes a burden and so it's interesting um to think that through a little bit um uh in the context of um Simon Coleman uh, and Tina Sepp and Marion Bowman's chapter on cathedrals uh, in England. They look at how um, these, I mean, a cathedral is a big material affordance for Christmas, right? It's a massive building that, um, that has to be Christmasified every year, right? And so, the, but the cathedrals become this site of uh, contestation between um a commodified Christmas and a Christian Christmas. And they also take a lot of upkeep. And cathedrals are kind of interesting spaces in England because they're both very public 
and, and they are sort of state recognized sort of sites of heritage, um, but they're also really costly to, to maintain. And so in their um, chapter, they kind of look at how the cathedral becomes a, at Christmas time, the cathedral becomes a, a site of sort of performing Christmas, um, but also sometimes awkwardly um, in combination with, um, with uh, corporate um corporate donors or, or corporate sort of clients of the cathedral almost. That's not the word they use. Um, uh, but it becomes the, the, the keeping up the cathedral is um, it's a lot of work for a lot of volunteers and a lot of people who are some of whom are paid, some of whom are not paid, but who are really committed to the cathedral as an important public and Christian space. Uh, and, it, and thinking through that that site um, makes you helps you to see how yeah I mean the cathedral is a sign of hegemony in a way but it's also a beautiful space where music sounds uh, acoustically wonderful and where a lot of people give a lot of their time to uh, welcome strangers so we really try to keep um, I I never think that critique for the sake of critique is helpful to anyone it's it's important to try to understand why people act in the ways they do um, even when you profoundly uh, disagree with them I think that's the job of a scholar and the scholar of religion that means sometimes trying to understand things like hegemony but not only from not only from a sort of self-satisfied perspective of thinking oh these people don't even realize their own privilege but we can point it out and undermine it all so that's kind of my approach well on that point of uh or, or that tension between like you know the cathedral and consumerism mm -hmm. um we end up talking to a lot of uh marxist and sort of like leftist folks on our podcast and it's interesting to learn that there is a history of marxist studies on christmas um so yeah I and mean, what what are some of those studies looking for what can marxist scholarship tell us about a holiday that's so tied to celebrating capitalism or how would we work out that sort of tension a little bit more yeah, I think there's a lot of really fabulous uh, work that really thinks through um, Christmas as a site of sort of capitalist production, um, and that work is uh, is really important and informs some of the work that we were we were doing. And there's a there's a big German critique uh, of uh, Christmas that that overlays that critique of. Um, of Christmas as sort of consumerist and capitalist with Christmas as a, a kind of source of uh, nationalism um, in, in sort of in dangerous ways. Uh, so I think that's, that's one of the, kind of, that's an important overlap there. Um, there's also a, a good feminist uh, critique of Christmas as a holiday um, that like many holidays means, you know, it's a holiday for some and it's a hell of a lot of work for <laughs> other people. And it's usually women, not always. Uh, maybe less so now, um, but uh, there's a scholar named Michaela de Leonardo who wrote a great article many years ago on the female work of love and ritual. I think it's called. Um, and there's a in that in that vein, there's a lot of really interesting work on thinking about um, gendered critiques of of holidays and and um, the work of of holidays. So that that book would be more like the not the private work of Christmas, but the intimate work of Christmas. We do try to sort of, or the domestic work of Christmas. We do try to um, cross the sort of public uh, domestic um, uh, worlds in thinking through uh, things in this book as well. Um, I think the one of the 
really great articles. And we, I think they're all great, but there's a great article by um, a woman uh, named Helen Moe, who uh, was one of my graduate students at the University of Toronto and, and very sadly passed away um, before the, the book was um, published. Uh, but she and the book is, is dedicated to her memory. Um, she has an article uh, called A Christmas Crisis, which uh, thinks about... Um, uh, an incident in a school in which some of the uh, high school in which some of the students get uh, some 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 of the white students get very um, uh, uh, aggrieved about thinking that they're being told they're not allowed to say Merry Christmas in the school. And she goes through how this sort of crisis erupts through social media and all kinds of other things and sort of a, a kind of racist xenophobia, anti-Muslim um, uh, concerns getting raised or or. Um, uh, concerns is too nice of a word, but uh, anti-Islamophobia being sort of um, provoked uh, through this this debate about Christmas. Um, but then she also takes the time to think about how um, how class factors into this is a, a school in in southwestern Ontario where there's a lot of um, uh, class issues at play, and that many of the um, the so-called Canadian, the students who think of themselves as real Canadians are also the students um, of much less means. Uh, and there's a whole history to um, sort of the um, decline in unionized labor. There's a whole bunch of stuff around class and um, uh, and different kinds of uh, privilege um, in the context of this particular school that, that this Christmas crisis then allows her to sort of think about. Um, and I think there's, so, so there can be unexpected ways that, uh, that you can, you could make use of, uh, Marxist or, um, uh, a range of feminist, a range of different theories that are trying to think through questions of, um, of class, gender, racialization, um, and Christmas becomes a very rich site. Rich site for doing that, as a number of these essays show. Yeah, I mean, it's there's a huge range of, of topics and scholars represented for sure. Uh, but we sh- we definitely should talk about your own contribution to the volume too. Uh, you know, apart from just the introduction, you have a chapter six, um, which is called uh, "The First White Christmas Settler Multiculturalism, uh, Niska Hospitality, and Ceremonial Sovereignty on the Pacific Northwest Coast." Um, so, in the essay, you use some of the tools from the introduction uh, to look at how Christmas shows up as sort of like an occasion for building certain kinds of communities in in Canada, both among settlers and indigenous peoples. So uh, could you explain maybe a little bit about your own contribution here and uh, what you found in in your own kind of work on the public work of Christmas in this chapter? Sure. Um, So that chapter, I guess, to to bring it back to that Marxist question, it's it's looking at how in in some ways you could say uh, the Niska of, uh, you know, Northwestern, um, the Northwest Coast, Kind of seize the means of production of Christmas to their their own ends in a way. Um, so it it looks at uh, a very specific Christmas in 1913 when a, a number of white settlers had just arrived in the Nass Valley, which is like the very northwestern part of what is now called uh, British Columbia by Canadians, um, and uh, how they are welcomed uh, both by this white missionary who had lived there for a long time and by the the Niska uh, community that is 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 there uh, on the Nass River and had been for. Uh, since time immemorial, uh, as they say. Um, and so uh, the missionary writes an account of this Christmas 
these sort of four days of Christmas and I kind of unpack it a bit. Uh, I think one of the interesting, one of the most interesting things about Christmas in indigenous contexts is, you know, it's a winter feast. It's a lot, there's a lot of gift giving. There's a lot of exchange going on. Um, and it becomes a site in which uh, indigenous nations across up and down the, the Northwest coast um, find Christmas a great affordance for um, practicing their own uh, traditions of winter feasting, what you know becomes to be called uh, the potlatch. Um, and uh, the potlatch and Christmas have a lot of uh, similarities, a lot of gift giving, a lot of eating, a lot of feasting, a lot of um, speechifying, um, songs being sung. It's, it's a winter festival. And this becomes very important uh, for questions of sovereignty um, on the Northwest Coast because um, by the late 19th, early 20th century, um, the Canadian government, with the help of missionaries, has outlawed any kind of feasting in which uh, exchange of money or exchange of gifts takes place. They've outlawed the potlatch um, uh, explicitly through the Indian Act. Uh, which is a set of colonial uh, laws by which Canada has uh, regulated the lives of Indigenous people um, in a multitude of ways and which is still extant in, in Canadian law. So um, putting it briefly, the, uh, the NISCA um, both oh, quite uh, openly, they, they welcome the settlers, but they also want to set the terms of what that welcome is. And the, the speeches at this Christmas uh, event uh, make that clear. Uh, and so it becomes, um, and they also host the, the settlers at their own uh, banquet in which they perform their own um, songs and, and give their own speeches. The chief, is, uh, a chief named Andrew Mercer gives his own speech. Uh, and you uh, can see through um, reading be between the lines and having a broad, well, what I hope to show is and having a broader understanding of how um, Christmas and the potlatch are related in this sort of ceremonial legal context of the Indian Act, um, that Christmas, um, even in this, you know, what some people might consider to be remote corner uh, of uh, North America or Turtle Island becomes a, um, a place to, to really think about how um, sovereignty uh, between colonial and indigenous nations has to always consider uh, the role of whether you want to call it religion or spirituality or the the different kinds of sort of cosmological traditions uh, of Christianity and indigenous nations needs needs to be taken into account. So does that does that clarify it? Yeah, I think it does. That's a really fascinating way to get at that. I mean, overarching, you know, theme of the totality of Christmas against you know the the leftover um, or you know what's on the outside of that totality. I think that's a really fascinating uh, way to talk about that. Well, um, we're almost to the end of the hour here. So to close off the conversation, we have one big important question to ask. <laughs> um, so we're out here, we're, we're doing our Christmas shopping, we're watching our Christmas movies, and just like Charlie Brown, we're wondering what's the real reason for the season here? Mm. Or, or maybe um, <laughs> pose more critically, I guess. Um, how do we, I, I don't know, what do you think, like, how do you, how do you like Christmas or kind of enjoy the season while also being very critical of it? Mm-hmm. Well, here's where I think the question of sort of positionality as a scholar um, can be sort of helpful. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a white woman who comes from a Mennonite 
background. Uh, I'm a mother of three children. Uh, and for me, um, you know, and I grew up celebrating Christmas. And for me, Christmas is is really important. It's a it's a time where I mean, and I also work at a university, and this is the one time in the life as a as as a university administrator, which I currently have a role as a university administrator. This is the one time of the year when people actually stop sending emails. So between December twentieth and January, hmm, I can't remember the date. I think we come back on the sixth or something. There's a two week period in which nobody will send an email which is a true blessing in, in my view. And you can actually um, get off your devices. And the favorite, my favorite thing to do during Christmas, after doing all the baking, and uh, which I also love to do, is actually sit and read a book and give myself the gift of, of time to read a novel. So there is something, um, but this is, you know, then, then stepping back and thinking about, okay, yeah, that works for me as someone who is, you know, from a, a tradition, from a family in which Christmas is really celebrated. Um, it's a, it's a, it's an important family time for me. Both, you know, my um, larger family, smaller family. We, we are, we're all committed to Christmas. Uh, so even for people who don't celebrate Christmas, uh, that time um, can be uh, time out of the. The, the grind of um, of daily living. Now, I do want to also say, as I said before, that for some people, they have to work more at Christmas. So I'm not, I don't want to think that, you know, it is this time at a time for everybody because it clearly is not. Um, but it is, uh, for me, uh, understanding that, um, I mean, I, I do look forward to Christmas and I do look forward to, uh, you know, decorating the tree and exchanging gifts on Christmas morning um, because it is my, uh, you know, it's my, it's my tradition. Interestingly, we had a uh, sort of conversation about the book with, um, with some of my colleagues uh, last week. And one of my colleagues is an anthropologist of Islam, Amira Mittermeier. And she was uh, talking about how in the context where she works in, in Egypt, there are, you know, um, uh, people often, Muslims will, will worry about the Christmasification of Ramadan and they don't want that to happen. But it made me realize, huh, I would love for someone to write an edited collection on the public work of Ramadan so I could understand mm. how that holiday uh, interacts with uh, economic, political, um, ritual, seasonal ritual um, uh, infrastructures in that context, because I'm sure there's a story to be told there as well. There is something, I mean, so on the one hand, think, thinking more broadly, there's something about um, ritual and festivity um, and and public holidays, so where the state has said, okay, everyone needs to close down, um, that is important for human flourishing, um, I would say, um, but also, you know, anything that is we think is important for human flourishing also needs our very careful uh, critique to understand who counts as human human in that understanding and, and what's meant by flourishing. That's all so great and so helpful. Uh, I hope that people read the book. Um, I'm sure it would make a great Christmas gift. Certainly would make good uh, Christmas reading. Um, and yeah thank you so much for spending some time with us and helping us uh, think all this through we're we're really excited to keep digging into Christmas and I think you've given us a a lot of tools to do that I'm delighted to come back anytime All right, (laughs) we'll take you up on that
Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. You can give us some of that good, good Christmas gift money. You can re-gift it to us. We'll happily take it, and we'll do whatever we want with it. It's our gift. Who knows? Maybe we'll re-gift it. Uh, a cycle of gifts. Uh, that's, that's my socialism, the, re- the re-gifting of Christmas gifts forever. Uh, you can also buy a, a t-shirt or a sticker at our store at redbubble.com slash the Magnificast. You can connect with us on Twitter at the Magnificast. You can email us at the Magnificast at gmail.com. You can go to Facebook. We're everywhere. You can't get away. We see you when you're sleeping. <laughs> we know when you're awake. Um, just the Santa Claus panopticon over here. Um, anyway... <laughs> the music uh, for this theme, again, is by Carlos Mejia Godoy. The song is Navidad and Libertad, and we'll use it uh, for the next couple episodes, too. Um, hopefully these episodes are getting into the Christmas spirit, and if they're not, you can bah humbug us at our email and tell us what you think. Uh, all right, I'll see you next week. Esa metralleta de juguete que te trajo este año Santa Claus es el aguinaldo cariñoso que te manda el tío Sam. Hoy necesitamos más escuelas, más cultura, más educación. Son más importantes y en maestros un blindado batallón Feliz Navidad Feliz Navidad en justicia y libertad